This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Well, greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. We're so excited that you guys have joined us. Thank you so much for spending some of your time listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, why don't you head over to iTunes and subscribe to us, rate and review us. If you have been blessed by the Pastor Mike podcast, and you can also download us on Satchel as well. And we have a guest today. Um, he is a professor and a great thinker. And because Jamar Tisby was not able to join us, he is going to fill in in his slot. And so you have big shoes to fill, Professor John. No kidding. No kidding. Wow. Well, it's an honor <laughs> to be a part of this. Thank you so much for the invitation. And if you guys did not hear me, that is Professor Alex John. And uh, he is a TED speaker and the author of From Here to University, Access, Mobility, and Resilience Among Urban Latino Youth. Uh, so, Professor John, tell us a little bit more about yourself. What are, what are some of the things that you're doing currently in the academic realm and some of your passions? Yeah, well, thanks again for the invitation. Uh, I've been blessed uh, to be able to work at Azusa Pacific University, which is in Southern California. It is a Christian university. I've been here for about eight years. Uh, before that, I was at the University of Southern California, which, aside from football, really doesn't have any religion. And uh, <laughs> right, it's great to be here at APU. You know, the last few years, uh, my research agenda has really shifted. Um, uh, as you mentioned before, the book that I wrote and some other articles that uh, primarily focused on uh, Latino youth or first generation students, low income students going to college. Uh, and then I started doing other work on race and diversity. But most recently, my focus has has been with white evangelicals, so Christians who are in the dominant group, the, ma the majority culture. Mm -hmm. uh, as I was doing research on students of color and people of color, I've come to realize that we can't just keep having these discussions among people of color and students of color. We continue to frame the problem uh, with our gaze, the way we look at the world, as how do we make these students succeed? And if they don't, what is it about the students who fail. Now I'm talking about the context of higher education, right. um, access, mobility, and success. Well, what if we turn the question around? What if we focus less on the participants, on the students, and looked at the institution to say, instead of asking the question, for example, what is it about these students that make them successful or make them fail? We could ask the question, what is it about the institutions that cause hmm. students of color to succeed? or to fail, more importantly. Then it shifts the focus, doesn't it? It, it changes uh -huh. it from windows to mirrors. And since a lot of the institutions that I look at, Christian institutions, are predominantly white institutions, it sort of forces the discussion to look at majority culture, white evangelical Christians, and what is our role, what is their role in, in higher education, or if I were to extend that, um, to the church. So that's been the most recent work I've been doing. That's excellent. That's very interesting. Now, as you've dived into that, 
what have been some of your discoveries? What have been some of the things that have challenged you and some of the threads that you feel we should probably pull, pull on a little bit more? In the last two years, I have a research team of PhD students um, at APU. We've been engaged in this work of uh, racial reconciliation, diversity, and primarily, again, on white evangelicals and their role in racial reconciliation. And uh, we've conducted studies across the country um, in different regions, southeast, southwest, uh, uh, east coast, west coast, etc., and uh, by and large, these are uh, Christian institutions, and we interviewed a whole bunch of uh, white evangelical Christian administrators. So that's a little bit of backdrop of some of the research we've been doing. We've got publications forthcoming. Probably the most interesting uh, fact that we've been able to uh, find, and this is sort of a, a, an emerging model for us, uh, we call it the engagement awareness continuum. Um, Engagement and awareness, or awareness and engagement. Uh, First of all, what we're finding is people who are engaged in this work, again, this is white evangelicals who who are aware of racial injustices and our primary focus is on race. Uh, White evangelicals who are aware of some of the challenges um, that are going on systemically and what are they doing about it? Well, what we're finding is that the first, the most important thing for people who are engaged in this kind of work is a sense of awareness. So where did this awareness come from? But by and large, it was uh, a, a critical life moment. There was an event or there was a person that started this conversation, uh, what we refer to it as a light bulb moment. So these uh, people have engaged with uh, people of color maybe a friend, a neighbor, a church member, uh, somebody at uh, school. And that led to this uh, light bulb moment to say, huh, maybe the way that I've been viewing the world and the way my family and everyone around me told me that the way the world is may not be absolutely true. That's been my norm, but it may not be someone else's norm. And so those triggers then led to this sense of awareness. Now, I'd like to say that all it took was that one moment, but the reality is it takes a lot more. It's a journey. And people are on this journey. uh, And that's where we uh, place most of our uh, research focus is how do you get from that initial light bulb moment awareness stage to deeper awareness of yourself and moving beyond yourself? Because I think we stopped at, let's say you stopped at white guilt. I get this a lot. People will say, okay, Alex, you you got it. Okay, I'm guilty now. I feel very bad. Well, the goal is not for you to feel bad. Um, And in fact, if you feel bad, the problem is you've still internalized it and you're thinking much more individualistically as Mm -hmm. opposed to systemically. And I think the people that we've been talking to, these white evangelical Christians who are engaged in uh, racial reconciliation and racial justice, understand that it's systemic. And it's not that you personally are a bad person, but they understand that they are part of of a larger system at play. Okay, and we have a special surprise as well, uh, Professor John. We have Jamar Tisby on the line as well now. Why? It's a special surprise? <laughs> yes, it's a surprise is, that you are on. This is just ordinary stuff. This is just ordinary <laughs> stuff. Dr. Jamar, welcome Dr. to Dr. your show. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's good to talk to you. I'm so glad we get to, get to uh, share with our listeners all the wisdom and the work that you're doing. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate being invited here, especially uh, it's Black History Month, so it's uh, especially appropriate, um, uh, and it's an honor to be a part of uh, Reform African American Network. 
Awesome. awesome. Well, so you kind of pulled on this thread about awareness and engagement, the fact that it's a journey, it's not a one-time experience, and that most people who you found in the majority culture who have an understanding of these issues of racial injustice and who are sensitive to it have have a systemic view. What pro- what promoted that systemic view? Was it simply that personal experience or was it reading certain things or was there a certain look at scripture? You know, what what yeah. what kind of added a little bit of fuel to that fire? Yeah, great questions. Um, I would say it's a combination of everything. Uh, it's again to to take a diversity class. Let's say that somebody had a class that a lot of people may have taken a class in college or in, in their graduate school, uh, but that's theoretical knowledge, right? That's just head knowledge. It doesn't really touch the heart. And so, while that might be helpful, the real connections and the real light bulb moments came with a personal narrative um, of a friend or someone who's close to them, as I mentioned before. And that really solidified it because uh, these participants that we studied, they realized, well, this is a good friend of mine or somebody I've known for a long time. I don't think this person is lying. So if the person's not lying, then when when a person's sharing about his or her realities of racism, systemic, personal, microaggressions and, and whatnot, uh, you kind of start believing it. And so it's that combination of head knowledge and heart knowledge that really drives it home. But what's most interesting uh, with the participants that we interviewed, uh, these Christians, they understood that it was biblical. And that was important. The, what drove them, what motivated them for racial reconciliation, it's not some liberal social justice agenda, that it's actually a biblical mandate, that this comes from the Bible and Scripture itself. Well, you may have touched on this already, but, you know, oftentimes there's resistance to to even the reality of systemic injustice. And like you said, it can be labeled as a sort of uh, liberal, uh, right. theologically liberal, social gospel, what have you. Uh, I mean, are how do you sort of persuade someone or help them understand, first of all, how would you define systemic injustice? And then uh, to the extent that someone may be skeptical, how would you go about making a case for it? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, as I have engaged in this work and I teach a diversity and social justice class in higher education at at the PhD level, at the doctoral level here at APU. And, um, and in different circles, when I present and give workshops, there is always this sense of resistance. And uh, I had given this example that it's, I've equated this kind of talking about racial reconciliation from a biblical perspective. And this is uh, ushering in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. It's very similar to sharing the gospel, as I found. Um, <laughs> people are resistant. People get angry. It's, they're offended. Mm. Uh, and uh, you could lose friends over this. But, you know, I, I realized that it's never the first time you hear it. Oftentimes, and this is my own experience in hearing the gospel, the first time some, a friend of mine in high school shared the gospel with me, I was really offended. I said, you're calling me a sinner. You're saying that I, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong. And nobody likes to hear that. Um, And so trying to get people to understand that I am not personally attacking you because the response, and you've heard this time and again, well, I haven't owned slaves. My family didn't. I've never called anyone the N-word. The list goes on and on. And trying to get people to understand from that first conversation where there's a lot of resistance and fear and, uh, 
and offense taken to staying engaged, staying at the table, having these conversations time and again, um, and saying, look, I, I hope you understand that this is not personal, that it's systemic. And then to provide a lot of data, a lot of examples, a lot of historical artifact. We have examples now, um, books and articles that have been written about redlining, about systemic racism in real estate, in uh, hiring practices. The data, the list goes on and on and on. And to present that, not from an emotional perspective, but with facts. And so there's plenty of tools in our arsenal to present people with facts as long as a person's willing to stay engaged. I think that's the important thing. And as long as I'm willing to remain winsome. Yeah, and that's that, the hardest part, right? That's the struggle <laughs> right there because I think, you know, I hope I hope I have your level of chill in, in most circumstances because it, it it's like you're saying there's there's a type of information you can get maybe by taking a class or something, but it remains sort of theoretical and abstract until either you know somebody or you experience it yourself. Right. So a lot of times I struggle with being able uh, to, to um, you know, be somewhat detached or uh, just even keeled because it's not it, – when folks are questioning the reality of these things, they're not only questioning, you know, sort of an ideology or, or, or a, a theory that you hold. They're actually questioning your, your personal experience. That's right. Um, That's right. And, and, and how, how – I mean, do you have any – input on that maybe there's a time that 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 you didn't keep your cool and maybe something you learned from it as as to how to do that better in the future brother there are too many times where i have lost my (laughs) i'm ashamed to admit it um and there are times what you know that's the challenge i think for people who are going to do this work it is not easy and i think for those listening who are engaged in this work who are just fatigued they're just tired Tired of tired of the fight, tired of the arguments, tired of getting criticized on both sides. Uh, for people who are saying you're too divisive on one end, on the other end, people are saying you're not militant enough. <laughs> you need to be doing. Um, so people get tired, and I get that. What I've realized is this is not my work. This is the Lord's work, and the Lord will convict the hearts that He will convict in the time that they are ready. And so that just liberates me from saying all my all I need to do, like I said before, it's like sharing the gospel. All I need to do is be faithful in continuing to share what I believe to be true and uh, and my own experiences and leave it on on them to to make the decisions. Um, you know, there's this great quote by William Wilberforce that you can continue to well, what's the quote that you uh, you can continue to say that you don't care, uh, but you can't say you didn't know. Mm. I've completely butchered that, but um, you know it's knowledge. You can you you can say that you don't care, and you can look the other way, but you can't say that people didn't tell you about what right. the reality wow. is. Wow. That's wise. That's really good, man. Mm. You, <laughs> I think I think you may be saving me from a, a lot of uh, headaches and confrontations <laughs> in the future. Hopefully, hopefully, at least diminishing the number. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so, so Professor John, how have you? What are, what are some things that you've seen as far as the most common blind spots, right? So I, I'm I'm imagining someone listening who's part of a majority culture. They say, okay, I'm all ears. Help me understand what are some of these blind spots? So maybe I've heard a personal narrative from my friend or a church member or a neighbor, but I'm not fully convinced. Take me a step further. What are some things that you've seen 
as far as the majority of uh, majority culture would miss and wouldn't catch about systemic injustice? Two things rise to the top for me. It's this Western, European, North American notion of individuality and individualism and the way we view the world um, much more individualistically than we do corporately or collectivistically. Um, so some have argued that that's – some scholars have argued that's white culture, right, that we don't think mm. – in groups, we think of individuals. So when you talk about systemic issues, it does not compute because you naturally refer back to your own experiences and those in your group. So you would, again, you would give examples like, well, I have never used racial slurs. I have never, my family's never owned slaves, etc. So those are classic examples of how you hear racism and you only hear it personalized and again the issue is racism is defined in some people's eyes in a majority culture eyes as something that is malicious and intentional so that's one issue so then when you were to talk about something that what are unintended consequences and critical race theorists talk about this idea of intent versus impact you may not have intended to do something but the impact was still very real on the person on the receiving end so that's one example The other example that's sort of related to that individualistic notion is the myth of meritocracy, right? The myth of merit to say that I've worked hard and I've earned everything that I have because, you know, I studied hard and I went to school and I did my homework and all those types of examples. Uh, But to really challenge someone to say, well, are you saying then that a person of color or women or whatever example of people who have been historically oppressed – are you saying they did not work hard? Is it fair enough to say that they worked just as hard as you did? Or are you challenging their merit? Right? So that, that becomes the other issue, is trying to understand that no matter how hard you work, you're on a treadmill that doesn't go as fast as another person, or you're running a race where a majority culture has a five-lap lead. I mean, they started five laps ahead of you. I mean, that's sort of historically how you want to look at uh, systems of power and prejudice. So you, you address critical race theory and maybe some of the concepts that came outside of the traditional evangelical spectrum. How have you interacted with works outside of your tradition or works outside of your faith? How have you interacted with that yet still keeping a careful watch over how much that could shape and mold your theology? Well, there's one interesting similarity, I would say, whether I'm working within uh, the church or Christian contexts or just non-secular institutions. Whiteness is prevalent. Hmm. And this, the, the culture of whiteness, the, the, that uh, majority culture dominant way of thinking cuts across all uh, religious Lines. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I think a uh, white non-Christian and a white Christian may have more in common in the way they view the world. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe wow. some, you know, some political ideologies, uh, 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 social conservatism, whatever, how do you, however you want to frame it. There's more similarities, and I think, with white non-Christians and white Christians than there are with, say, Asian American and black Christians and white Christians. Now, that's problematic because we believe that being a child of God is what is central to our being and our humanity. So that's it's uh, troubling at times and humorous at other times that I realize there really is very little distinction in the way a dominant majority group thinks. So uh, I could be at a secular institution or systems that are in place like the U.S. Um, 
U.S. government, civil uh, government, or something specific like a church or um, a college, a Christian college, it's still predominantly white in its ideology, in its culture, in its practices. What does that look like uh, in terms? Let, let's maybe take a church and how it operates, whether on Sunday morning or even in its ministries, because I think a lot of the a lot of these these um, conversations when we talk about dominant versus subdominant culture, if you're part of the dominant culture, it's it's invisible because it's just the air you breathe, That's and right. so it's hard to even mentally conceptualize what something different might look like or how. How, just how very pervasive uh, what you assume to be normal is 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 not actually uh, the the norm for other groups of people. So, can you describe you know maybe some elements of dominant culture? Yeah, um, you know we could learn a lot from cognitive neuroscience. Uh, this whole notion of thinking fast and thinking slow. You know, people can very quickly figure out what's two plus two, um, and it's sort of automatic. But if you were to say, you know, what's 365 plus, you know, 240, it takes a little bit longer. You can get it, but it takes longer. And if I go back to this idea of in, uh, implicit biases, right, mm. long-held assumptions of the way we view the world, it's white normativity uh, because you view the world a certain way. And if you're in the dominant group, that's normal for you. So that applies in almost every sphere of life. Um, and you asked the question about churches, for example. The way a church leadership, let's say if it's a dominant group in a predominantly white church, they will view the world and, and sort of their regular activities and the way that they'll lead the church as, well, this is normal. Or perhaps even equate that with this is biblical, which is not necessarily wrong. But if, if there is a cultural lens by which we view the world, which I think there is, sometimes we interchange biblical with white and we can't <laughs> see the difference. Right. Well, that oh, man. is. Wow. Hmm. That yeah. a problem. That becomes a problem for whom? It becomes a problem for anyone who's not in the dominant group, who's at your church. So decisions that are made, music that is played, uh, the liturgical style, uh, the examples that are given, you know, those are all, in one sense, they're culturally uh, biased. Um, and, and again, I, I need to stress this. It's not that the people in charge are bad people. Right. This is where people start feeling guilty and feeling bad. Well, that's that's not that's not the point here. Um, so I can't stress that enough. It's just that you haven't seen it. So you think quickly about decisions. Um, you know, a, a, an example might be and I've heard several of these examples and we could probably interchange the races. But if it's a pre predominantly white church with a predominantly white leadership that intends to be multicultural, in other words, they want to bring in congregation members who look different. Now, never mind that the staff and the leadership is not different. That's a whole other story which we can mm. talk about as well. <laughs> Let's just talk about window dressing. Let's just talk about the, um, uh, the compositional diversity of any organization. It could be a Christian college or it can be a church. I've heard these examples of a group of Korean Americans, for example, who are attending a predominantly white church and uh, they're probably, what, 20%, 30% of the, the congregation, and they start getting together. The leadership then would say something like, I'm a little bit concerned that the Asian Americans or the Korean Americans are spending too much time together. It, it could be divisive. <laughs> right, so right. This because of the sake of community. Well, you, you know where I'm going with this. What is the problem? 
we've had 400 years of white people gathering together in community and no one has ever challenged them. As soon as you get 20% of people get spending time together and you need this affinity group, you need people to spend time together, all of a sudden it becomes a problem. Well, you know, when you're on the receiving end of this, it's very subtle. Maybe not so subtle, but you are reminded that you don't belong. That's a huge point, and uh, it, it's one that I, I, I sort of realized instinctually, but I didn't have words for it until I, I did some more research. But mm. these kinds of ethnic-specific groupings can serve a very positive function. Um, and I know it makes the folks in the majority nervous sometimes, but for me, it's the only thing – it, 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 that's really allowed me to survive in the midst of predominantly white institutions is the opportunity, uh, particularly with other believers, to gather, as in my case, African-Americans, to talk about what our experience has been like in this you know, school or church or wherever right. with a group of folks who understand where you feel like you don't have to have all these defenses up that where you don't have to sort of um, carefully pick and choose every word for fear of offending someone who doesn't have the same context that you do. And, and, and I think it's important because you go to that space in order to go back out. And I think that's, that's the part people don't quite see is that you go to that space, but you don't stay there. You actually get empowered and encouraged and affirmed so that you can go back out and be a minority in the midst of the majority without becoming embittered or fatigued or, or, you know, taking your ball and and walking away. So, you know, I encourage those things if they're framed in the right way, for sure. And, you know, just to extend some of this conversation, when, a majority culture, a dominant group in power, especially because a lot of this has to do with people. It's it's multiplied by power because then you feel even more helpless, you feel more oppressed, you feel more disenfranchised when you're not in power. So that's a that's a reality. But for those in power who say, "Can you not spend time in your groups?" Right. So for African Americans, spend time. Can can we not just? all be one group and not recognize race. So again, people who are in favor of a raceless society, post-racial approach to diversity, the problem with that is what you're saying to me as a person of color is to be white. Right. Is to put down my color, to put down my ethnicity. Um, but we embrace it. I mean, it's racism doesn't go away by getting rid of race. Racism. <laughs> Oh man, he's got Yo, so many not, good one-liners okay, in okay. this. We got to tweet that one. Hold up, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Wow, and I, I got it. So this is good. Um. <laughs> we we got like three or four of those. We need to tweet out just since I've been talking. That, that's amazing. Um, have y'all talked about giraffes and elephants yet? No, we did not nah, do it. Do it. Let's see, go. See, the first time I saw you was at the PCA General Assembly yeah. and you were part of a panel. And I'll never forget the 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 analogy you used and the picture you painted about giraffes and elephants. It was just this powerful, clear, helpful illustration of all the things we've been talking about. So so is yeah. that copyrighted? I mean, can you say that? It is. It is. It's actually <laughs> by uh, R. Roosevelt Thomas. Okay. Associates. Um, the book is called uh, Building a House for Diversity. And the first two pages of that book, the best part of the book, in fact, is this fable of the giraffe and the elephant. And uh, so um, I actually got it from from their work. It's a great fable, right? I mean, it's a non-threatening, great, 
kind of humorous uh, way of introducing a very, very difficult topic to talk about blindness and um, your inability to see. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to hear this. I'm ready to hear it. <laughs> giraffe, the giraffe and the elephant. Uh, the story is about a giraffe who's an architect, who's a very successful architect and built these beautiful homes, um, probably in a gated community with other giraffes who lived there. His house won an award, you know, most beautiful house of the year award, probably by um, a giraffe magazine. He's working in his house and he looks out the window and he sees uh, walking down the street an elephant. And uh, the elephant is a friend of his. He knows him from uh, PTA and their kids do uh, soccer together. He says, hey, I'm going to invite him in. I think he's an architect as well. I'd love to show him some of my work. So he yells out to the uh, elephant to come into his house. And the elephant is delighted, comes up to the house, and they encounter a problem. The first problem is the elephant can't fit in through the door because the house is built for giraffes. So the giraffe says, oh, I see the problem. I, I can make accommodation. So he, because he's an architect, he unhinges the doors, uh, opens it up for the elephant to come in. And uh, they're sitting together. And then the elephant's wife calls him and says, hey, there's a phone call for you upstairs. Giraffe says, hey, make yourself at home to the elephant while I go take this call. The elephant tries to make himself at home, looks around, can't get anywhere. The walls are too narrow, can't look out because the windows are too high because mm. it's built for a giraffe who has a long neck with a narrow body. Elephant's starting to get into trouble, trying to walk up the stairs, breaks the stairs, backs back, backs down, and then knocks over a lamp and all this other fun stuff. Um, I'm obviously elaborating and embellishing from uh, <laughs> the story. The giraffe comes back and says, what is going on? And the elephant says, I, you told me to make myself at home. I tried. And the elephant uh, is apologetic. And the giraffe says, I see the problem. It's you. You need to lose some weight. Wow. Wow. Or you need to take some ballet lessons to get light on your feet. I hope you'll do these things. I hope you'll change because I really like having you here. But the elephant's unconvinced because the elephant says, I'm not so sure that I'm the problem. I'm not so sure that an elephant belongs in a house that's built for giraffes. Mm. So that's Man. the essence of the story. And my goodness, you can expand that to any organization or institution that is built by giraffes, run for giraffes, and run by giraffes. Who for, and you got to feel bad for the giraffe, right? I mean, for goodness sake, he invited the elephant in. He was being hospitable. And how many churches and organizations that we see like to do that, like to invite the other in? And they're mm. saying they're hospitable. The first problem is, you know, you make it sound like the giraffes own it, right? Wow. It, wow. Oh, come on now. So when you <laughs> say, I'm being hospitable, you are a guest. You are welcome here, but you are still a guest. That's the first problem. The second wow. problem with that would be that the elephant needs to change that people of color need to change in order to fit in so it's to change who you are it's code shifting it's a variety of things you can't you just can't be who you are and we can continue to talk about the person who needs to change or as i started our, our podcast with we could talk about the institutions that need to change mm. Mm. wow that is <laughs> man let me, told you. let me let me ask you this professor Okay, so what is the role for people of color to push this conversation in majority spheres? Because yeah. sometimes I, I feel, you know, when I bring up some of these issues and, and you've kind of talked about, okay, even if it's patient, even if it's calm, even if it's in, in the sense of, of trying to be winsome, 
I kind of feel like there's a fatigue on the other end that you're you're continuously poking the bear and there's yeah. there's a sense of tension, you know, I'll be transparent. There's a group I'm always at and I, I think there's a sense of tension in some parts of of, you know, certain circles that I run in that oh, well, he's going to bring up this or he's going to bring up that and and you know, how do how do you exist being that guy without being that guy. Man, <laughs> that's great. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, I, there's a, I think there's some good debate among people of color um, who are engaged in this work. Uh, some people will say, it is not my job as a person of color to educate white people, to educate the dominant group. Um, as much as I, on days where I feel that that is true, um, <laughs> I also feel like those who possess the truth are then obligated to continue to share the truth. Right, right. I equate this argument with sharing the gospel. Um, if I'm a Christian at a, at a group of people, friends, and you know, work, whatever, where they know that I'm the only Christian in the room, they're like, okay, here we go. Here's the Christian perspective. Here it comes. Well, you know, that's a good thing, right? Um, you don't want to be so undercover that people don't know where you stand. I mean, that's a problem too. Uh, mm. But I think part of the challenge is if we continue to place all of the burden now i'm a, a faculty of color here at a predominantly white institution uh, the burden falls on the people of color to do all the people of color stuff all the diversity work all the all the proactive engagement work for diversity etc the problem i'll go back to the giraffe and the elephant you know who's the most effective in communicating to giraffes another giraffe <laughs> yeah so we, allies. <laughs> we need people in the dominant group who understand this and get it or maybe don't get it but are on that journey to understand yeah. it to sit and talk with people in their affinity groups at uh, Thanksgiving dinner tables with you know that crazy aunt or uncle or you know friends where no one else is around where it's the safest place to tell an off-color joke you know those are the circles that we need to have conversations and people who don't tell racist jokes, but just don't get it, who, who don't understand that this is a systemic issue. Places where people of color are already, when they enter that space, everyone sort of gets uncomfortable and is not sure if we're going to end up talking about race because there's a person of color in the room. We probably will uh, when I'm in a usually end up doing that, but because uh, they see me coming. We need people who, are, who get this and are conscious and are aware of this who you don't see them coming and the conversations has to happen. Yeah. And that's, that's what I appreciated about, uh, uh, Sean Lucas and Lincoln Duncan presenting, uh, the, the personal resolution on civil rights remembrance, um, to the PCA, because these are two well-respected churchmen and scholars who are part of the dominant racial, uh, group who are saying, Hey, we need to talk about this explicitly and repent of it. And and then they begin to feel some of the sort of pushback that minorities often feel when we bring this up. But right. I think I think another important point is as I've been doing this work for years and years now, especially, especially through RAN, there are there are some conversations that I don't enter into because I'm starting to realize I'm not the right person to do it. Right. Um, you know, there are just some groups where they are in such the the rudimentary stages, I would say, of understanding the racial dynamic in this nation 
that were I to say something, it could too easily be dismissed. It would too easily raise, you know, anger and, and frustration and all those kinds of things. And, and, and I would encourage them, I would encourage someone uh, who's white to actually ha- have the conversation, say the same things I would, That's right. but it would be received differently. Um, and that's just one of those things. And I think for my minorities, it should be partially liberating uh, that not every conversation is the one that we have to have, that there might be someone who's closer to that group culturally or racially who could even be more effective, which is not, I would, you know, in the same breath, it's not a pass. I believe, you know, you're, you're right on with the sort of gospel analogy. Folks need to know where we stand, uh, but sometimes the messenger makes a difference. That's right. right. Let me let me ask you this, uh, Professor Jen. That's my this is my last question. Um, and there's really I could ask you about 25 more questions, but I'll <laughs> keep it to one. Um, what are some books that have been really formative for you? Some some resources, uh, maybe some works of art, um, just any cultural artifacts that you found that have helped to further your understanding of this conversation along and also encourage you. Let me give you a couple books that I think are really, really helpful. Um, Christina Cleveland is a, a social psychologist. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Disunity in Christ. Disunity in Christ is a really good book. I think it's very helpful. Um, uh, so that would be probably at the top of my list uh, for books to consider. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is, um, let's see, here's a book called Everyday White People confront racial and social injustice. There are 15 stories in this, so we 15 different authors. Um, um, Eddie Moore and Marguerite Pennick Parks and Ali Michael are the authors of this. Everyday White People Confront Racial and Social Injustice. Um, also a pretty good book. Uh, the list, I, I got quite a list of books that I think would be good. There is another book that's coming out, uh, forthcoming very soon, that I think this audience would appreciate. Um, uh, I'm not sure what the title is, but Doug Servin, um, who's a PCA pastor, a teaching elder, has put together uh, a book that's going to be coming out, I think, by the General Assembly, uh, by the time General Assembly 2016 rolls around, on uh, reconciliation. And it's a good number of people who have um, written chapters for this. But that's going to probably be the most helpful and brand new. Um, so it's mm-hmm. forthcoming this year. I do have uh, one other question since uh, Tyler asked you about books and things that have been formative. Did you see Beyonce's formation video? I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we're going there. Okay. Well, you know, it just, it came out and we got an expert here. So I figured, Hey, you know, let's, let's, let's break it down a little bit. What did you, what did you think of the video? What message was it trying to convey? Agree, disagree. And, you know, maybe how should Christians respond to, you know, essentially a secular artist for all intents and purposes, uh, putting out this kind of very pointed uh, social commentary? Well, I think it's interesting that a lot of people may have missed the the reference or the homage to Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's probably the first thing. So, you know, I, I like to joke and say, you know, I don't know what my opinion is yet. I haven't gone on social media to find what my opinion is. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's probably the first note. And then I'd love to talk about Cam Newton as well. But OK, if there's time, <laughs> we're talking about the Super Bowl. But, um, you know, it's fascinating to me. Again, I go back to whether you're uh, a white Christian or a white non-Christian. It's probably a disconnect with some of the social, um, social justice-oriented uh, discussions. I thought it was very brave of uh, Beyonce. I love that you can use whatever sphere. I think this is what um, 
uh, Abraham Kuyper would say about sphere sovereignty, right? That with whatever area that you're in that you could use. I love the fact that she uh, used her medium and her artistry to convey a message that had some depth, some political movement and some um, respect to the past. I thought that was really helpful. Um, but it was either over people's heads and they didn't realize what was going on. It was just, you know, dancing um, <laughs> or they understood it and they didn't like the fact that artists would engage in political uh, discussions and use that platform. I think what a what a great way uh, to use a platform. I don't think artists need to quit their jobs and become social workers. I don't think they need to become uh, uh, diversity coordinators at universities. They could work it right where they are. I agree. It was, um, you know, as you were saying, the the giraffe and the elephant analogy, I thought of that song, not only the halftime performance at the Super Bowl, that, but the, the video she released the day before. Yep. And it felt to me almost like instead of the elephant coming into the giraffe's house, this was now the giraffe coming into the elephant's neighborhood. That's um, right. And That's so right. in a sense, you know, there was a post out there by a white woman that basically says, this song isn't for me and that's okay. Mm. Um, because it was, it was a celebration of sort of black identity and culture in an, in an unapologetic way uh, right. that, that resonated with I think minorities, but then if you're in the majority, you're like, wait, what is this? This that yeah. doesn't make sense. I miss these references, like you're saying to the Black Panthers or hot sauce or whatever it might be. Right, yeah. And then, uh, but at the same time, the folks who who do identify with that culture or understand it better. Uh, a lot of them, it seems like, again, social media tells you what to think. At least on social media, a lot of folks uh, who are African-American or a racial minority are identifying and even celebrating the fact that here the thing that the thing that stuck out to me was here's a song where you don't have to feel somehow ashamed or inferior because you have black or brown skin. It's That's actually a, it's a celebration of that. It's yeah. empowering. It's liberating. Um, you know, the other note was you saw that all the young children, uh, young people who are up on stage, sort of the, creating that uh, atmosphere of a concert um, and the musicians. I think it was Gustavo Dudamil who was doing the, the orchestration here in L.A. Um, a lot of Latino uh, students on stage, right? a lot of brown kids. Mm. Mm. And uh, maybe some of the commentary is, why are there so many uh, Latino students, all these uh, brown children on stage? If you're a Latino, if you're a person of color, you know, this is the first time you get to see stuff like that, the intentionality of it. Um, and it, un, until you see it, you realize, oh, is that what I've been missing? So this is Super Bowl 50 and I've been watching for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. You know, you don't get to see that. And so it was uh, on that level, and no one's commenting too much on that, but that was really encouraging. Absolutely, absolutely. Watching it with my kids, and they were able to see this, and, you know, it was, uh, in that sense, both empowering and liberating at the same time. Yeah, I think um, I think last what, the last time Beyonce did the Super Bowl, um, I think it was a striking moment when, I believe it was Alicia Keys did God Bless America, and Jennifer Hudson did... Um, the national anthem and and then Beyonce did the halftime show and it was it was kind of like a a stunning moment where you see you know her band was all all black females or all females i believe and so it was it's kind of a stunning moment to see wow that there's all these images that my sister is able to see and while some of them we would debate about the positivity or the sexuality and and some mm -hmm. of these other things there there's she's still able to see these images 
portrayed, you know, to hundreds of millions of people worldwide. And so it was a powerful symbol and a powerful picture um, for those who are watching. Tyler, should we talk about Cam or should we leave that off? It's up to you. I mean, I can talk about Cam. (laughs) (laughs) I I figure, yeah, since we got we got the time and it was relatively recent, according to the, the timing of this podcast, I think there's a whole lot you can talk about in terms of Cam Newton, um, the quarterback for the Carolina Panthers, who was in the Super Bowl, they lost. Um, and so th- there was things leading up to it and all season long simply about his style of celebration, yeah. his exuberance, connecting that to African-American race, culture, identity. But then obviously yeah. after <laughs> – <laughs> yeah, and and then and then after the uh, Super Bowl, his his press conference afterwards, where he 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 walked off, and the comments people were saying, and then there was a no, he didn't was, walk off, right? He shook the hand of the winning quarterback, and he yes, <laughs> yes, it the, was the interviewers he didn't like, or the you know the the venue that was a exactly. Yeah. So so give us your perspective. What 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 particular incident of the litany? stuck out to you and sort of what's behind that from a cultural perspective? Yeah, I don't know if there's one particular event. I, I saw something again. I love how I form my opinions based on social media. But the whole idea of being able to go back to when Peyton Manning lost and uh, he walked off the field without shaking hands. This is when what he was in, in, in Baltimore. I know. Where was it? Uh, the Colts. Uh, the Colts. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so he walks off the field, doesn't shake any hands, and he said, oh, he's a competitor. Uh, Cam Newton shakes the hand, smiles with the quarterback, and then he has issues when he's in the, um, uh, the press room with the interviews, and everyone says he's a bad sport and all these other things. The, the takeaway for me, I think, is what is it about society that makes it so easy to vilify black men? Mm. Ooh, oh, my. Oh, my. my. Yeah. Oh my! Keep going, keep going, Professor. That's that's the part that fascinates me. It's so easy to go there, and it's it's we're just itching as a society to go there, and to place blame and to problematize black men. I think part of the challenge is our own understanding. I'm my own limitations as an Asian man to understand other cultures. Um, what is considered uh, masculine? What is considered competitive? Um, what is considered emotional? And all of those factors, if you're not part of that culture, your own lens and your own internal biases and that tape that runs through your head the uh, 24-7 that says, oh, this is inappropriate. And then we label it and we vilify. And it's so easy to do. And it's not one particular incident. As we said, it was not the interview. It's everything up the way he celebrates and everything. It's like, oh, well, I don't like the way he does that because that's not the way I would have done it or my people would have done it. Wow. What makes it so easy for society to vilify black men? Golly, you got so much to tweet out, Tyler. <laughs> so it, much. Man, it, this has been just such a great conversation. And I wish we could keep going for another 30 minutes, but we do have to wrap up. Um, and I, man, I've just enjoyed your thoughts so much, Professor John. Where can people follow you? How can they get a hold of you? Well, I've just created this. Uh, uh, my research team and I have on Facebook primarily race and justice in higher education. And we have a website, rjhe.org. But uh, race and justice in higher education, you can find us on Facebook. 
And uh, that's where we post. Thank you so much. I uh, know, Jamar, I know you've enjoyed this conversation and uh, yes. we hope our listeners have as well. So many takeaways, so much to chew on. And what this basically means, we're going to have to get you back, Professor exactly. Jack. So just be prepared. We're going to have to bring you back for another longer conversation where we can really get down and, and dirty into a lot of these things. It would be my honor. I love the work that you all do. I hope uh, the Lord continues to bless this ministry. We want to thank Professor Alex Jun for joining us on this episode of Pass the Mic. You can learn more about the Reformed African American Network by visiting RANNetwork.org. You can also follow the network on Twitter at RANNetwork, as well as the show at underscore Pass the Mic. And don't forget to like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Reformed African Americans. Pass the Mic is a collaborative effort between the Reformed African American Network and Pottery Studios. Visit Pottery.com to discover the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for this show, as always, has been Bo York, and our guest has been Alex Jun. And join us next time on the next Pass the Mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.